interactions from all over the world all together in one group. So tune in to Radio Labor all during the week. They have daily reports. And the big news, of course, is climate, what people call climate change. It really should be called climate catastrophe, climate chaos. And the question asked by one of our one of our correspondents, we have two Francescas here as correspondents. One is Francesca Fiorentini on her site, Newsbroke, and um, Francesca Ramsey on the Decoded uh, site. So this morning, Francesca Fiorentini is going to talk about capitalism in, in a very down-to-earth, sensible way. Can we have Amazon and the Amazon? Here she goes. Amazon and the Amazon? What about if the boxes doubled as levies? Please! I'm Francesca Fiorentini, and in this episode, we're looking at the failures of profit-driven climate change solutions and why the cooking of our planet is becoming a recipe for socialism. Once again, we've broken global temperature records with July being the hottest month recorded since the invention of recording temperatures, which if you're a right winger, sounds like very biased framing. The libs never wanna talk about the Hadean age when the earth was molten lava, typical. It's so hot that Greenland is losing ice that wasn't supposed to melt until 2070. The Arctic is on fire, and I'm pretending I belong at random pool parties. Oh, who, who am I friends with? Oh, Derek. Or Michael. Matt. You're telling me there's no Matt here? So now seems like as good a time as every other moment prior till now to talk about climate change. The planet has already warmed by one degree Celsius since the time we started burning all these fossil fuels. And we're on track to warm by four degrees, possibly as soon as 2060. According to the most recent UN study, even two degrees of warming would mean millions more refugees, double the loss of food harvest, 10 centimeters of sea level rise, and an obliteration of all coral reefs. Which means we've got 12 years to have a shot at keeping the temperature to a still bad but manageably terrifying one and a half degrees celsius of warming so yeah banning plastic straws ain't gonna cut it even though it's fun to watch so-called liberal paper straws trigger our president into doing this his campaign started selling trump themed uh plastic straws <laughs> so you could buy a pack of 10 for 15 dollars 15 dollars for 10 straws that's a dollar fifty per straw. If that's how much Trump thinks straws cost, how much is his dealer charging him for Adderall? Yeah, that'll be uh, seven hundred thousand dollars. Part of the reason we're at such a breaking point is thanks to years of shallow solutions. Solutions often devised by the same corporate interests that got us into this mess in the first place. One of those solutions is carbon cap and trade, which tries to get polluters to pollute less by limiting the amount of carbon any corporation can emit, but also by allowing them to purchase carbon limits from other companies who haven't used theirs up. Cap and trade has already been implemented in countries around the world and in a number of U.S. states, but many say that it doesn't actually stop emissions. It just spreads them around and creates a speculative market for carbon. Like, imagine if you could buy and sell Weight Watchers points to keep eating pizza. Someone would be making money, but no one's losing weight. 
Plus, we'd see the rise of a frightening thin people mafia who control the whole racket. Just listen to one researcher who says cap and trade pushes us in the opposite direction of where we need to be going. We need to overcome our addiction to fossil fuels, and the problem with cap and trade is, it, is that it stands in the way of doing that in, in many ways. It's, it's, it's a way of providing pollution rights to some of the worst polluters so that they can delay the kind of structural change that's necessary. He's right. That's not how you fight an addiction. If you want to get your brother off heroin, you don't split up his stash between your mom and dad like, let's all just do a little bit of heroin to keep Brad from doing a lot of bit of heroin. At this point, cap and trade isn't even a relevant solution anymore because it's too slow to be viable. California, the second largest carbon polluter in the nation, but first in my heart, reduced its emissions by almost 9% in three years, which is not bad. But do the math. It's not nearly enough if we've got only 12 years to get to zero. Silicon Valley is still going to be underwater, and then we'll have to deal with a whole bunch of flotation device startups, and that just seems exhausting. So cap and trade won't get us there. What about innovation? We'll just ask the science nerds to come up with something. I mean, other than the ones telling us to stop burning fossil fuels. Innovation has been the aim of private companies also looking to get rich off the climate crisis. Floating ideas like geoengineering, which includes one plan to spray reflective aerosols into the stratosphere to block the sun. Yeah. Aerosol. If only our climate change denying president knew that this whole time the answer has been hairspray. Turns out, though, that that scheme, like many others, has too many unforeseen side effects to be feasible. Things like stopping rain and totally vindicating chemtrail conspiracists. Even if wacky inventions or cap-and-trade worked, they're still too slow. Meanwhile, the U.S. continues to subsidize the fossil fuel industry to the tune of $649 billion a year. So not only are they making the planet uninhabitable, they're getting a goddamn discount. These faux solutions have come and gone, all while climate change has been getting worse, which means now we need to do far more in way less time. The longer we wait, the more that the response challenges our economic system because we need to cut so much and so deeply. What does she mean that the response will challenge our economic system? Well, that's because our economic system is currently based on using up all of Earth's natural resources with no regard for the actual Earth all to turn a profit and create economic growth, or GDP. You remember GDP from our video on the economy, which you should totally watch. And while you're at it, subscribe. GDP is that phantom number that many agree is useless, but is actually incredibly harmful when it comes to climate change. Since when was GDP a sensible measure of human welfare? And yet everything that governments want to do is to try to boost GDP. Now, people like the OECD or the World Bank who say, oh, we're not asking for a lot of growth, just 3% a year. That means doubling in 24 years. Yeah, we're bursting through all the environmental boundaries and screwing the planet already. You want to double it? We have to overthrow this system, which is eating the planet with perpetual growth. I love how blown this host's mind is. Rarely do you see the precise moment that someone gets woke. You mean it's not about plastic straws? Slowing down economic growth has actually been the only thing that has drastically stopped greenhouse gas emissions. The only thing in the last 40 years that has measurably reduced global greenhouse gas emissions is reductions in economic growth. When the Eastern Bloc collapsed in the early 90s, that led to global emissions reductions. He's right. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, greenhouse gas emissions dropped by about 40%. Apparently, people not eating meat because of the high prices had a lot to do with it. It was nothing but veggie borscht for them. 
and to think now it's way less painful to avoid eating meat with things like the Impossible Whopper, which I will try as soon as I stop being afraid of it. How does it bleed? The evidence is there that unless we're willing to rethink capitalism, we might have to rethink life itself. Because we can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. We've been obsessed with doing more to stop climate change, making even more money, when the answer is actually keeping fossil fuels in the ground. Doing less. Like Disney live-action reboots. Do less. Less extraction of oil, less production, fewer or no yachts for the DeVos family. Renewable energy, solar and wind can replace coal, gas and oil, but we still can't keep endlessly producing and consuming. Even a UN official back in 2015 said as much, and that got the attention of Fox News's Greg Gutfeld, who quoted her on his show. This is probably the most difficult task to intentionally transform the economic development model for the first time in human history. And predictably, that was met with red baiting. Well, she's wrong. See Mao and the 50 million dead, or Stalin. Hell, look at Venezuela right now. It's a crap show without toilet paper. Yeah. Seriously, they don't have toilet paper in Venezuela. Oh, where we're going, Greg, you won't need toilet paper because the whole world will be one giant bidet. You can wash your face ass wherever you want. Beyond the red baiting, there's an honest question. If we slow down production, will there be jobs? Enter the Green New Deal, a plan introduced by Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and that other guy. The Green New Deal is a blueprint for a 10-year mobilization to get to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by taking major steps like moving to renewable energy and building public transportation, all with the labor of millions of newly created jobs. This is a call to reorganize and to make sure that we are fighting for a just economy, for a just society, a just environment, and a just future for the United States of America and the world. Mm, sorry, having an ASMR moment. And whenever there's a plan for massive public investment and putting people over profit, it scares the 1% and their mouthpieces a whole lot. They went looking for an issue that would justify a hostile takeover of the economy. Climate change seems scary, so they went with that. Oh my God, Tucker Carlson would rather human civilization die than live in a more equal country. Also, note what's going on just to his right. Yeah, those are updates on an abnormally large hurricane off the Gulf Coast. I love how there's an infiltrator at Fox fighting the machine from the inside, and it's the weather. It will be hard to rein in emissions and capitalism for that matter, but it is possible. We must try with your help, with your insistence, with your organizing, with your demands, with your voting, with your mobilizing a broader electorate than we have ever seen before in American history, we do not have to go down that path. It's too late to stop some climate chaos. We're living it. But are we going to die from the things we love, no matter how humiliating? Will we be the David Carradine of civilizations? Or are we going to get real about real solutions? There's time, but we can't do it by just pissing around at the margins of the problem. We've got to go straight to the heart of capitalism and overthrow it. In other words, wouldn't we rather be red than dead? Thanks so much for watching Newsbroke. Follow me at Franny Fio and follow AJ Plus and Newsbroke on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, all the things. Do you guys think that the U.S. has what it takes to transform to a new economic model? Could we, could we do it? Let me know in the comments below and we will see you next week. Francesca Fiorentini there with her Newsbroke um, segment.
on can we survive capitalism? Can the earth survive capitalism? <clears throat> Central to the whole transformation is what we do. We go out and do every day. Under capitalism, we go out and work 40 hours or more per week for a, a percentage of what we earn. How's that going to change? How are we going to change over? Bernie Sanders has a proposal to pay everybody a, a salary for five years, close to what they're earning, while they have a chance to transfer over and learn another trade. That's one thing. What about a guaranteed income where you had a certain minimal guarantee so you could pay for shelter and food and the basics and at the same time go out and look for other work? Now, a lot of jobs aren't going to come back. A lot of jobs are going to change, and this is one of them. Coal mining. Come all you coal miners, wherever you may be. And listen to a story that I relate to thee. My name is nothing extreme, but the truth to you I'll tell. I am a coal miner's wife, I'm sure I'll wish you well. Coal mining is the most dangerousest work in our land today. With plenty of dirty slave and work and very little pay. Coal miners, won't you wake up and open your eyes and see what the dirty capitalist system is doing to you and me. They take your very lifeblood, they take our children's lives. Take fathers away from children and husbands away from wives. Come miners, won't you organize wherever you may be and make this a land of freedom for workers like you and me. Dear miners, they will slave you till you can't work no more. And what will you get for your living but a dollar in a company store? A tumble down shack to live in, snug rain pours in the tub. You have to pay the company rent, your paying never stops. I am a coal miner's wife, I'm sure I wish you well. Let's sink this capitalist system in the darkest pits of hell.
friends share the same jokes, but they meet in older places. So don't tell me about your success, nor your recipes for my happiness. Smoking bed, I never could digest. of songs from the Working Class Heroes album. Uh, last one was Sixto Rodriguez, Rich Folks Hoax. How the whole thing's a scam, right? To keep you working and making other people rich. Before that, we had Mean Things Happening in This Land, an old and ancient a folk song about the transformation from a world where workers are enslaved, basically, wage-enslaved, to one where they stand up and take the stand. Mean things happening in this land become good things happening in this land. And before that, we had... The coal miners, come all you coal miners. All right, so this is, a, this is an album by Matt Callahan and Yvonne Moore. You can buy it at PM Press over, over in Oakland. And like we were saying, some jobs are going to disappear. One of them is coal mining. And the way coal mining was being run, being administered, was a form of slavery. A form of slavery in which the slaves got to go home at night for short periods. Got to wake up in the morning in 
know, their whole lives were dedicated to their work under the ground. Coal mining. Mr. Trump talks about clean, wonderful coal. Well, he doesn't know what he's saying. He's saying that to make people that he called liberals, to make them uncomfortable and rub it in their face. Uh... It doesn't change the fact that coal pollutes terribly. Okay, I want to look at some strikes that are going on right now. Okay, this has been kind of a... Uh, kind of a... Um, uh, springtime for unions, springtime in the union, whereas Bob Dylan would say sundown on the union. Whereas let's look at the nurses. Nurses on strike outside the University of Chicago Medical Center. Thousands of nurses across the country, this is per the New York Times, went on strike Friday morning, pushing for better patient care by demanding improved work conditions and higher pay. About 6,500 Nurses United members at 12 tenant health care hospitals in California, Arizona, and Florida organized a 24-hour strike, which began at 7 a.m., In Chicago, more than 2,000 nurses walked off the job after contract negotiations broke down on Wednesday night. Yajaira Roman, an intensive care unit who works for Tenet Healthcare's Palmetto, Palmetto General Hospital in Hialeah, Florida, says, we're pretty much urging the hospital to invest in the nurses and take steps to strengthen our recruitment and retention of experienced nurses at the hospital. It's very difficult to give a patient optimal care if our patient ratio is so high. Research th shows that with every patient over four assigned to one nurse, in a medical surgical unit, there's an increase in mortality of 7%, noting that her hospital currently allows for eight patients to one nurse. Can you imagine now? She's saying anything over four starts to harm patients' health. In fact, increases the possibility of their dying. And they have one to eight. A, smong, a strong contract between the union and the hospital, Ms. Roman said, helps ensure that patients receive the best pass, possible care. National Nurses United members in all four states have been working either without a contract or under an expired one. The strikes in Arizona and Florida are the first by registered nurses in those states. Fawn Slade, a registered nurse in Tucson, says, if we did not feel this way, 
that this was necessary to get a contract, a strong contract. We would not be out there doing this. In Arizona alone, 37,000 people with active registered nurse licenses don't work as nurses. Okay, so check that out. Uh, let's look at the United Auto Workers strike. This is from the Detroit Free Press. GM strike talks resume as Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders set to visit picket lines. UAW and General Motors resume negotiations this morning as the auto workers' national strike entered its sixth day. A separate strike by UAW represented janitors who work for Aramark and served five GM sites in Michigan and Ohio was in its seventh day. Elizabeth Warren said she would be at the factory at noon. Bernie Sanders said he would visit the same plant on Wednesday. Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota visited already this week. The strike started last weekend. First, about 850 janitors employed by Aramark and represented by the UAW walked off the job early Sunday. And after the union's separate contract with GM expired, about 46,000 GM workers went on strike across the United States early Monday morning. At issue for GM strikers are wages, health care benefits, job security, ending a two-tiered wage system, and making temporary workers into permanent ones. GM strikers in Flint are worried but determined to fight for America. And you might as well accept that the way it's said. They are fighting for America. Every one of these big strikes, the L.A. teachers strike, the nurses strike, the GM strike, these are people standing up, and when they succeed, you succeed. Their success means that union movement, that workers' movements in the United States are succeeding. Right, I want to I want to um talk now about a an issue that's coming up. This is like of course football season, the beginning of football season. Saturdays, Friday nights, Saturdays, it's the college game. Monday, Thursday, Sunday, it's the pro game and of course the whole thing is based on betting. People are interested in football, both for the game itself, a lot of people, but the great majority for betting and for fantasy games. Well, all this action, all this money that's being made 
the NCAA, which is the governing body of college sports, made $1 billion in profits last year. $1 billion. This from the work of young men and women who play on college teams. So let's listen to this. Are college athletes about to get paid? Arlington, Texas. Spectacular performance by the Huskies. March Madness is just about to end. Napier, wow! He is one of the best you'll see in college basketball. The 2014 National Championship game, UConn wins the championship, which, by the way, none of us expected to happen. Like, it was a pretty big surprise that that team managed to win the National Championship. ESPN's Bomani Jones can still remember the Cinderella victory UConn pulled off that year. They were as unexpected a national champion as I can think of off the top of my head. But the reason Bomani still thinks about this game, it isn't because of anything that happened on the court that night. Instead... It's because of what happened afterwards. Um, honestly, hey, I, I want to get everybody's attention right quick. That's when an announcer put a microphone in front of a player named Shabazz Napier. And you could tell that Napier had something that he had planned to say, and he said that we are the Hungry Huskies. Ladies and gentlemen, you're looking at the Hungry Huskies. This is what happens. But the hunger was not simply in their desire to win a championship. He meant that we are literally hungry. And he talked about the nights that those guys go where they, you know, hungry at night and don't have anything to eat. Hungry had become this way Napier talked about himself. A few days earlier, he'd been asked whether players should organize, demand that colleges pay for their athletic work. Uh, you know, we're, we're definitely best to get a scholarship to our universities. Um, but at the end of the day, that doesn't, that doesn't cover everything. You know, we do have hungry nights that we don't have enough money to get food. And um, sometimes, you know, needed money is, you know, money is needed. Um, so After Napier spoke out, the NCAA told athletes they'd be eligible for unlimited meals while playing college ball. But the idea that they would pay athletes, that was out of the question. The thing that really stood out to me when I was watching that Shabazz Napier tape was he, he doesn't seem to be asking for a lot. No. Like he says, you know, yeah, you know, sometimes we go to bed hungry just because, you know, we don't have the food, dining hall is closed. And then he says, but you know, I don't. I don't think we should be paying people a lot of money. Uh, but I, I don't think, you know, you should stretch it out to hundreds of thousands of dollars for players, you know, because that's not, you know, a lot of times guys don't know how to handle themselves for money. So uh, He's like, guys could get greedy. They don't know how to manage their money. It's this sort of he's saying both things at the same time. It's it's humble. Yeah, it is. And I disagree with him entirely on the whole idea that, you know, we don't need a lot of money and all this. And this is one part of this argument that I've always found to be fascinating is why it is that people are concerned that the players might get too much money. Right. And so, you know, the only thing we don't know how to manage money. It is your God given American right to blow your money any way you want to. There is nothing here that says or requires that you be smart with your money, because if it did, would none of us get checks? Through TV licensing and tournament tickets, the NCAA makes a billion dollars a year. They insist their players are amateurs, though, 
They say students shouldn't be paid. But Bomani argues these athletes are at the end of a long chain of middlemen. And everyone else along the way is collecting a check. The college is making money. People having television networks that are making money. I'm making money. Like I, you know, like I get, like I work for the company that pays for a lot of these television rights and then sells the advertising. And part of those profits are paying for me. You know, like we're all in this in some form or fashion. There's literally one group of people who they have determined cannot get any money. And it's the people that we actually are watching. So what happens when you try to disrupt this cash flow? California is about to find out. Lawmakers there want to allow college athletes to earn money while they're still in school. The NCAA has vowed to fight them every step of the way. Some are saying this law could be a game changer. Bamani is skeptical. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. Okay, that was the argument about uh, football players getting paid, college football players getting paid. Do you ever think of that? Here they are playing on nationwide TV in some cases. The, The budgets of the athletic departments where there are big football programs and basketball programs are huge. Some coaches get paid up to $5 million a year, some more. Yet when a coach was asked, I believe it was a coach at Clemson, I don't want want to quote the guy. He was asked, should players get paid? He said, oh, no. That would be such privilege, you know. They'd be being so coddled, you know. He's making $5 million a year off their work and he's saying they shouldn't be paid because he's being caught they're being coddled hello somebody needs a uh (laughs) somebody needs a reality check i think um All right, and now let's look at the G. We looked at the GM. I'm going to talk for a little bit now about a guy named T-Bone Slim. T-Bone Slim was a uh, a wobbly. And let's check out this. He's kind of a Joe Hill figure, but uh, he was never never publicized the way Joe Hill was. I guess no one wrote a song about him. But uh, let's see this little video um, story about T-Bone Slim. Okay, T-Bone Slim. not hearing anything from T-Bone here. Is he turned on? Yeah, he is. Okay. This is a song written by T-Bone Slim. 
let's read this guy. This guy realized that T-Bone Slim was his, uh, his uncle. John Westmoreland. T-Bone Slim was a Finnish, a Finlander. Late last year, this guy John was doing research into his ancestry and discovered that his great-grandmother's older brother was a radical poet, songwriter, and columnist for the industrial workers of the world who went by the name T-Bone Slim. A legendary figure in history of the 20th century labor movement, his songs have been in print since 1920 and have been sung by musicians and activists such as Pete Seeger, Cisco Houston, and Utah Phillips, as well as untold numbers of working-class activists and union members. Some of his most famous songs are The Lumberjack's Prayer, Mysteries of a Hobo's Life, and The Popular Wobbly. John is currently working up renditions of some of T-Bone's published works, as well as songs that were never in print. Okay, and we'll have a, a shot of uh, John Westmoreland performing one of T-Bone's songs in a minute. His given name was Mary Valin, Valentin Poikahuta. He was born in Ashtabula, Ohio in 1882, a child of Finnish immigrants to the U.S. Very little has been known about his life outside the contents of his songs and newspaper columns, of which there are a couple of hundred pages of original writings still extant. The only image of T-Bone that has been published is a caricature that ran for 20 years at the top of his column. He was an elusive, mysterious character who managed to be an influential force while remaining virtually unknown. As Franklin Rosemont, labor historian, said, in Juice is Stranger Than Fiction, selected writings of T-Bone Slim, few people in the IWW even knew that Matt Huchta was T-Bone Slim. During the 1930s, his sayings were found written on the walls of boxcars, and they were passed on through by word of mouth by sailors during World War II. Typical of T-Bone's knack for staying out of the limelight, people often assumed that the moniker was kind of a house name and not an individual writer. The body of Matt Hookta was found drowned in the, in the Houston River, Hudson River, in 1942. Cause of death was asphyxiation circumstances undetermined. Little or no investigation was conducted, and he was buried in a pauper's grave on Hart Island in New York City. He was employed by the New York Trap Rock Company as barge captain of the Casey. The speculation surrounding his death has ranged from a drunken alcohol accident, 
accident to the possibility of murder due to his outspoken activism and writing. Legendary Tennessee folk singer and union activist Aunt Molly Jackson speaks of his death in the introduction to her song Crossbones Scully. All right. Let's listen to one of T-Bone's songs. This one's called Resurrection.
I'm as mild-mannered man as can be And I've never done them harm that I can see Still on me they put a ban And they threw me in the can They go wild, simply wild over me They accuse me of rascality But I can't see why they always pick on me I'm as gentle as a lamb, but they take me for a ram. They go wild, simply wild over me. Oh, the cop, he went wild over me. And he held his gun where everyone could see. He was breathing rather hard when he saw my union card. He went wild, simply wild over me. Then the jailer went wild over me. And he locked me up and threw away the key Oh, it seems to be the rage So they keep me in a cage They go wild, simply wild over me They go wild, simply wild over me I'm referring to the bedbug and the flea They disturb my slumber deep And I murmur in my sleep They go wild, simply wild over me Will the roses grow wild over me When I'm gone into the land that is to be When my soul and body part In the stillness of my heart Will the roses grow wild over me job in 29 when everything was going fine. I knew the pace was pretty fast, but thought that it would always last. When organizers came to town, I'd always sneer and turn them down. I thought the boss was my best friend, and he'd stick by me to the end. Got a word to say, he chiseled down my pay, then took my job away. Boom went the boom one day, it made a noise that way. I wish I had been wise, next time I'll organize. I had a little bank account, not very much, a small amount, which to the savings bank I took, all they gave me was a book. I pinched on food, I scraped on rent, I hardly ever spent a cent. My little savings grew and grew, I thought I'd be a big shot too. Ta-ra-ra-boom-de-ay, it made a noise that way. There went my hard-earned pay, say for a rainy day. Oh, what a dirty trick, this soup line makes me sick. Where can that banker be? He's eating soup with me. Then finally it came to pass that all I had to eat was grass. Wolf, don't bother anymore. He starved to death right by my door. With soup and gas and club and gun, they tried to make the system run. They said, dear friends, now don't get sore. We'll make it like it was before. Ta-ra-ra-boom-de-ay 
It busted up one day. Those guys that stole my pay went flying every way. All that I've got to say, I hope they've gone to stay. Each dog must have his day. Ta-ra-ra-boom-dee-a. That was a set of uh, wobbly songs. We had Re- Resurrection by T-Bone. Let's see, T-Bone. And then T-Bone, we had T-Bone Slim doing Resurrection and then another song of his called Wild Over Me. Oh, the roses go wild over me. And finally we had the boom, Tarara Boomdie. Saved all my money. And what happened? An accident. Okay, we're looking at um, part three of Fred Glass's History of California Labor. Let's take it up in the 1900s. Come on down. Los Angeles is paradise. The sun shines all year round. Land is cheap. Jobs are plentiful. And if you don't want to work, you can always go to the beach. Just ask Otis. Harrison Gray Otis owns the Los Angeles Times. In addition to shaping the heavenly image of Southern California, Otis is the chief architect of L.A.'s ongoing anti-union campaign. It begins when he breaks his own employees' union in 1890. Otis runs the Merchants and Manufacturers Association, which hires labor spies, imports strike breakers, and creates blacklists to keep known unionists from working. The association receives generous support from admirers like Henry Huntington, owner of the Pacific Electric Railway. Huntington had consolidated his enormous economic and political power in Los Angeles by marrying his aunt, the widow of Collis Huntington, one of the four original owners of the Central Pacific Railroad. The Huntingtons don't much like Otis, but agree with him on the need to keep Los Angeles workers in their place. However, the fanaticism of Otis, who likes to be called General Otis, causes a reaction in turn-of-the-century Los Angeles. The labor movement grows alarmingly radical. Leaders of the Los Angeles Council of Labor, such as shoemaker Lem Biddle, suffragist Francis Knoll, and organizer Fred Wheeler are socialists. They believe workers who produce all wealth should own and use it themselves. Even the occasional capitalist, like Gaylord Wilshire, after whom Wilshire Boulevard is named, becomes convinced by socialist ideas. Working people are listening too. Laundry workers hear the message because they work 12 to 14 hour days without overtime pay. Serious burns from scalding liquid and harsh chemicals are considered part of the work. As in the rest of the country, children in Los Angeles are employed everywhere alongside adults. Since they are paid very little, competition with child labor forces down the wages of adults too. Iron workers who raise the skeletons of the new buildings called skyscrapers face injury and death each day for the lowest pay in the building trades. There are no workers' compensation or occupational safety laws to help them. 
iron workers have to deal with the National Erectors Association, which hires labor spies like Robert Foster. As Iron Workers Union leader John McNamara reports, the association recruits professional thugs to beat up those who attempt to form a union. On both sides, it was war to the knife and knife to the hilt. Responding to these conditions, working people seek solutions. In 1901, women and men organized themselves into the Shirtwaist and Laundry Workers Union. They want a 10-hour day, time and a half for overtime, Sundays and holidays, and equal wages for men and women. When the laundry owners refuse to meet these requests, 500 employees in seven laundries go on strike. The owners are backed by the full strength of the Merchants and Manufacturers Association. The Los Angeles Times tells its readers that the laundry workers enjoy excellent working conditions and under no circumstances should the owners submit to union tyranny. As a result, the workers are able to win union recognition and better conditions in just one of the laundries. Nevertheless, union membership in Los Angeles quadruples between 1900 and 1903. You are a streetcar driver working the Market Street line. For 10 hours each day, you observe the new century's marvels like horseless carriages, which only rich men can afford. You roll past beautiful buildings carefully made by skilled craftsmen, but you have no time to admire things. Traffic is intense. San Francisco is known as a union town. The streetcarmen's union alone has 2,000 members. The strongest unions, however, are made up of the craft workers in the Building Trades Council, who enjoy the protections of a union shop as the result of a powerful strike victory in 1900. Each worker needs a union card to work. Each contractor has to hire union workers and use only union-made materials. Any violation of these rules is swiftly dealt with by the council and its Irish immigrant leader, P.H. McCarthy. Women are becoming a force in the San Francisco labor movement for the first time. Facing bullying supervisors, physically uncomfortable workstations, and sexual harassment, telephone operators form a union. They want to defend themselves against work one operator calls nerve-destroying. Some workers have already won the eight-hour day. You hope your commons union can do the same soon, because 10 hours on your feet six days a week is no picnic. Determined to roll back union achievements is a secret anti-union employers association. It attempts to break the Teamsters Union in the summer of 1901. The plan backfires. By the end of summer, more than 15,000 workers are on strike in solidarity with the Teamsters and for a universal eight-hour day. Sailors Union leader Andrew Furioseth is chosen to coordinate strike activities. Waterfront workers in 14 unions shut down the Port of San Francisco. Bitter battles rage in the streets between workers and armies of thugs hired by the employers. Unionists are infuriated by collaboration between the police and strike breakers, and by Mayor James Phelan, who turns a deaf ear to union leaders arguing the police should remain neutral. After 10 weeks, a truce is arranged. The unions not only survive, within a few weeks they form the Union Labor Party and elect Eugene Schmitz, leader of the Musicians' Union, mayor of San Francisco. For years, most unions followed the political advice of AFL President Sam Gompers, who urged labor to reward your friends and punish your enemies within the Democratic and Republican parties.
this policy does result in some labor law reforms enacted by progressive politicians. But the waterfront strike converts San Francisco workers to a new viewpoint. Says Furyuseth. I found that we had a class government already, and inasmuch as we are going to have a class government, I most emphatically prefer a working class government. In 1900, Eugene Debs runs for the presidency of the United States. Known to Los Angeles unionists as the leader of the American Railway Union, he had first come to their city following the Great Pullman Strike of 1894, speaking before huge crowds of workers. During that strike, Debs learned that corporations could force the government to do their bidding against the people. The experience converted him into a socialist and motivated him to run for president. For his running mate, he chose Job Harriman, a skinny Indiana preacher turned lawyer. Calling for restraints on corporations and economic justice for working people, their ticket received 100,000 votes. But the socialist message was just beginning to spread. Harriman had moved to Los Angeles for his health. He soon rose to prominence as a union attorney. Many of his clients were the victims of Otis and the merchants and manufacturers. When Ricardo Flores Magón, a Mexican anarchist labor organizer, is arrested in Los Angeles with his brother under flimsy legal circumstances, Harriman defends him and helps to turn his case into a union cause. General Otis writes in Times editorials that the demonstrations of support for Flores Magón in the Mexican-American community are being conducted by greasers, not of the better kind, of Mexican. Otis is referring to working people such as those who built LA's electric rail system. With the assistance of the Labor Council's Lem Biddle, Mexican workers had gone on strike against El Traque in 1903 and 1904, earning the wrath of Otis and Huntington. We worked in your orchards of peaches and fruits, and we slept on the ground neath the light of the moon. Due to its socialist leadership, the Los Angeles Council of Labor is way ahead of the rest of the labor movement in extending its hand to workers of color. When farm workers reach across barriers of language and race to form the Japanese-Mexican Labor Alliance, Fred Wheeler convinces the all-white labor council to support them in creating the first union in California's fields. Wheeler travels to Oxnard, just north of Los Angeles. He finds a small town. Its stores and services support the famous Southern California citrus industry. But Oxnard is also surrounded by extensive sugar beet farms beneath the shadow of a massive factory. Built in 1897, the second largest sugar works in the United States, it's owned by the Oxnard family, just one of whom lives within a thousand miles of Oxnard. The Oxnards treat the factory managers well, providing them with large houses and nice parties. Oxnard workers are treated less well, especially the farm workers. Brought by labor contractors from Mexico and Japan to work in the beet fields, they live in places like these. They pay inflated prices for their food and supplies in company stores and work long hours planting, thinning, harvesting, and transporting the sugar beets.
Early in 1903, the growers, in an attempt to eliminate the middleman, formed their own labor contracting company. The Japanese and Mexican contractors lose business, and workers' wages are cut. Anger helps them to form a union and go on strike. Despite grower-initiated violence reported as a labor riot in the local newspapers, the farm workers stand firm for two months. Few sugar beets make it into the mill. Finally, the bosses back down. With some help from Wheeler, JMLA President Kusuburo Baba, shown here in a photo taken years later, negotiates a settlement restoring workers' pay and giving Japanese and Mexican contractors back their business. Against all odds, the union wins. But its troubles aren't over. The Mexican Secretary of the Alliance, J.M. Lazarus, petitions the national AFL for a union charter. Samuel Gompers responds, it is understood that in issuing this charter to your union, we will under no circumstance accept membership of any Chinese or Japanese. Lazarus and the Mexican members of the alliance refuse Gomper's condition. They write back. In the past, we have counseled, fought, lived on very short rations with our Japanese brothers, and have toiled with them in the fields, and they have uniformly been kind and considerate. We would be false to them, to ourselves, to the cause of unionism, if we now accepted privileges for ourselves, which are not accorded to them. Without connection to the broader labor movement, the JMLA soon disappears from sight. All right, that's the... Um a story of the first farm workers union in California and a successful action in uh, Oxnard. Who do they care about? Let's listen to uh, Malcolm X and Michael Jackson and uh, Tupac here. A society in which they are deceitful, deceptive, and the only way we can bring about a change is to speak the language that they understand, to resort to any means necessary to bring about justice where the government can't give them
Michael Jackson there with uh, Tupac and an introduction by uh, Malcolm X. Used to have more Malcolm X, more uh, story. The show evolves. Anyway, they don't really care about us. And of course, 
If you're a worker, that means you too, in another way. You, you make them rich with your work. That's what they care about. That's what they care about. Well, it's about time for me to get out of here and uh, give up the seat to uh, Scott O. Walker, the uh, flat black plastic man. He'll be coming in next right after me. And, uh... Different facts of life that we must know about. On this happy peace day, I wish you peace. I wish you good work. And when you think about... Remember, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat, at the table, at the negotiating table, that is, you're on the menu, and never, but never let anyone into your heart who's not a friend of labor. When I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Come on down to Mutiny, 2781 21st Street, a true grassroots community arts center or you can tell your story film your story paint your story dj your story come on down to mutiny 2781 21st willie dixon it don't make sense if you can't have peace thanks to yaman and vita Solina and Sylvia, everybody out there who makes the day special and more peaceful. It don't make sense. Hello up there, Earl. Hope you're doing good. It don't make sense. It don't make sense if you can't make peace. When you can't make peace. Law Tigers, we fight for motorcyclists. We're not just motorcycle lawyers, we're part of the riding community. Law Tigers watches over riders. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, we'll help you get your motorcycle repaired or replaced and assist you with your damaged gear too. We're by your side every step of the way. With the Law Tigers, you never ride alone. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, call 1-800-LAW-TIGERS or visit us on the web at lawtigers.com. The Law Tigers, California's motorcycle lawyer. Victor Terrace, Harris Law Firm, LLP, 180 Permanent Circle, Suite 300, Sacramento, California, 95834. San Francisco, Mutiny Radio. San Francisco, Mutiny Radio. Listen to live streaming radio or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. Mutiny.
Listen to live streaming radio or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. Mutinyradio.fm. Why not make a donation? Mutinyradio.fm. Streaming live the station. Mutinyradio.fm. District of the Mission. Mutinyradio.fm. Mutinyradio.fm. Listen to live streaming radio or download a podcast. 